I'm Abby Nemec, and this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only those who like horses own them, it is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. Each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why I think it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, step onto the treadmill, pick up a pitchfork, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. Episode 4, Staff Sergeant Reckless. This is the conclusion of a three-part story about a real-life warhorse who provided critical support to the United Nations troops during the Korean War. This support was a key contribution in holding the line of resistance, and as a result, to the outcome as it stands today. If you want to jump into the middle of this story, that's fine, but it may be a little confusing at first. If you prefer your stories to start where they begin, you should probably pop this episode off and go back and start with episode two of the show, which is the beginning of this story. You can find episode two at atimeforhorses.com forward slash flame of the morning. We'll wait right here till you get back. If you don't mind a spoiler or having things a little out of order, carry on listening. I've drawn on four books and a variety of online resources in compiling this story. I've identified or linked to them all in the show notes, which you can find at atimeforhorses.com forward slash Staff Sergeant Reckless. In the previous two episodes, I began the story of a pony-sized Korean racehorse, barely fully mature, who was drafted on a moment's notice into the United States Marines in late October of 1952. The men in her anti-tank battalion called her Reckless, after the recoilless rifles whose ammunition she would carry. The little sorrel mare took to basic training like a champ, learned everything she needed to know about life on a military post, and became the absolute darling of her unit. She even liked the chow for the most part. Reckless's role was not exactly an official one, although she quickly became such a key participant that it didn't seem right to pretend she wasn't there. As a result, she eventually did make it into the official records of the Marine Corps. In an appendix to the anti-tank company 5th Marine's Command Diary for March 1953, Eric Pedersen wrote the following, quote, Reckless is not listed on any TA for a Marine Infantry Regiment, but she does exist, and although her role has not been a particularly important one, she has played a helpful part. For example, on 28 March 1953, when Vegas was no longer just another COP, the second squad of the 75mm recoilless rifle platoon, to which Reckless is attached, was assigned the mission of helping to screen our troops attacking Vegas with Willie Peter Shell. The squad firing position was on the topographical crest of a hill overlooking the battle area, the ammunition supply point several hundred yards away. Reckless brought over 150 rounds, half the ammunition used, to the top of that hill. 
She did this with apparently no fear for her own safety, although she was subjected, on several occasions, to enemy mortar fire. Reckless is a native of Seoul, Korea, and has been serving with the 75mm Recoilless Rifle Platoon Anti-Tank Company 5th Marines since October 1952. Vital Statistics Age, 5 years, approximately. Weight, 550 to 600 pounds. Height, 7 hands. Now, this is clearly some sort of translation error, since 7 hands is only 28 inches in height, but we'll take it. Characteristics, four-legged, hooved, vegetarian. Disposition, docile. Pictures are submitted herewith in Appendix V. Figure 4 shows Reckless fully loaded with pack saddle. The saddle itself is a stateside product, but the bag attachments were made by Sergeant Burgess, who works in the shoe repair shop 1st Service Battalion. Figure 5 shows Reckless with the amount of ammunition she is capable of carrying. Each round weighs approximately 25 pounds. Therefore, with a full load, Reckless handles about 250 pounds. Figure 6 shows Reckless with unit she is attached to. End quote. This horse's contribution to the war effort lay in her impressive ability to carry ammunition, through difficult terrain and under fire, with almost no supervision. In the spring of 1953, the 5th Marines was involved in one of the most horrific battles of the war, the Battle for the Nevada Cities, also known as the Battle for Outpost Vegas. From March 26 to 30th of 1953, Reckless traveled what may have been 150 miles or more over four days, much of it carrying a load of better than a quarter her body weight. And not only did she carry ammunition forward to the lines, but she also carried many wounded Marines back to safety. By the end of this effort, the Marines had retaken the lost ground, and they were able to hold a defensive line that was key territory until the armistice was settled on July 27th. Within a year after the ceasefire, Reckless was promoted to the rank of sergeant, and a few months later she earned her rotation out so that she could come to the United States with her fellow Marines. This is where we take up the story, as Sergeant Reckless sailed into San Francisco Bay on the SS Pacific Transport on the afternoon of November 9, 1954. As the ship passed under the Golden Gate Bridge, the folks preparing to receive this precious piece of four-footed cargo had a number of things to take care of. For one, Sergeant Reckless had taken advantage of someone's inattention on board, and she had shredded the red and gold silk dress sheet that had been made for her by a Korean tailor when she was promoted to sergeant. She didn't spare the ribbons, either. She would need a whole new uniform to meet her adoring public in port. The second concern on people's minds was that Reckless was an equine import. She would need a complete physical exam, as well as to be tested and shown negative for two infectious diseases before setting foot on American soil. Blood would have to be drawn on board by a U.S. Department of Agriculture inspector and sent off to the lab for testing. The horse was supposed to remain in port until the tests were returned negative. There was considerable suspense over this. If she tested positive for either condition, glanders or dowrine, USDA regulations would require Reckless to either be euthanized or return to the country from which she came. 
As an aside, both of these diseases are still with us today, though most horsemen have never heard of them if their horses are not crossing international borders. Glanders is a bacterial infection that can be communicated to other species, including cats and humans. It used to be much more common, but vigilant controls like this one have almost eradicated it. It's usually fatal, but it can be latent such that apparently healthy horses carry it with them when they travel. Today's good antibiotics are a pretty effective treatment against glanders, but it's also considered a possible bioterrorism agent. Actually, you may have heard glanders mentioned in the news this past summer of 2016 because a horse that had previously been stabled at the Olympic Equestrian Venue in Rio de Janeiro up until April of 2015 had tested positive and was euthanized. Glanders is endemic in Brazil, but all native equines were removed from the facility in order to have the site biosecure for the games. The other disease that Reckless was tested for was Dowrine. This is a protozoal infection that can also be carried by horses that show no symptoms as they cross borders. It's still found in parts of Africa and Asia today, but it's been pretty much eradicated from the rest of the world, again, because of measures like those that had the potential to affect Reckless. It seems that the test for Dowrine sort of upset her guys once they found out it was a sexually transmitted infection. They didn't like the implication that she hadn't been behaving herself. But dowering can also be transmitted to a foal at birth, so a horse does not have to mate to be affected. In any case, the quarantine presented a problem in the moment, in that our Korean War heroine had places to go and people to meet. Reckless had received an official invitation to the Marine Corps 179th birthday banquet on November 10th. If she was going to get to the party on time, she would need special permission from the Ag Department to attend the banquet and resume her quarantine afterward until the tests came back clean. It's testament to the high rank of her friends that the permission was granted. Eventually, Reckless would be billeted at Camp Pendleton, the home of the 1st Marine Division, which is down the coast near San Diego. She would serve her quarantine in nearby Vista at the home of her old friend, the man who had recruited her into the Marines, Lieutenant Eric Pedersen. Pedersen had actually been surprised to receive orders to meet the ship carrying Reckless. When he had left Korea, he had truly not expected to see her again. And yet, there he was, with a proper horse trailer, prepared to take his friend south to live with his family as she got used to her new life in the States. Some of Reckless's other good friends had been able to make it to town for her arrival as well. PFC Monroe Coleman had mustered out of the Marines, but he made the 900-mile drive from his home in Utah. Sergeant Elmer Lively had rotated home from Korea, and he made the trip up from Camp Pendleton with Eric and Kay Pedersen. Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Gear made it to the event too, and he appears in many of the pictures from that day. Unfortunately, Joe Latham, Reckless's drill instructor and mentor in the ways of marine life, was unable to get leave from Camp Lejeune in North Carolina and had to miss the festivities. You can well believe his absence was not for lack of trying. The Pedersons had arrived in town before the ship made port, and they received word about the problem with Reckless's damaged uniform. Quickly, they and Gear made arrangements with a local saddlery shop. Olson Nolte, for a new red sheet. They were also able to arrange to have the sheet lettered with 
Sergeant Reckless, and 1st Marine Division, and have new ribbons made and applied in time for the celebrity to disembark the following morning. The Pedersons, Coleman, and probably Lively, too, went on board to greet Reckless that afternoon. I'm quite certain there was not a dry eye in the place. It was either good luck or good planning that had Sergeant Reckless first setting foot on American soil on November 10, 1954, which was the 179th birthday of the U.S. Marine Corps. Reckless's first full day in the U.S. was, in typical fashion, yet another exciting series of events. Once her support crew, Pedersen and Coleman, had curried, brushed, and buffed her to a Marine Corps shine, oiled her hooves, and put on her new replacement sheet, the loading stall carrying her and Lieutenant Pedersen was swung across to the pier for her formal arrival. The press turned out in droves. The governor of California issued a proclamation welcoming her. He hadn't done that for Vice President Richard Nixon a week before. It's said that one of the reporters remarked, Reckless had more cameras on the scene than Nixon had as well. Reckless and Pedersen walked in and out of her stall over and over as the flashbulbs popped. She posed with carrots. It was big news. Eventually, when the pictures were all taken, they loaded the mare into the most luxurious horse trailer she had ever seen, meaning it was actually intended for horses, and then they drove her across town to the Marines Memorial Club building on Sutter Street. Now, you may not know that the Marine Corps birthday is a big celebration, and it has a number of important traditions that surround it. No matter where in the world they are, U.S. Marines celebrate this event with a cake, which they cut with a sword, and as much of a ball as they can manage under the circumstances. In this case, Reckless had been invited to attend as the guest of honor by the managing director of the Marine Corps Memorial Club, Major General Evans Ames. First, she had to pop into the club's theater, where she was presented to the members with a good old-fashioned meet-and-greet. There were interviews and more photos, including a picture of her drinking milk from a glass. They chose milk because there was concern that the color of her preferred Coca-Cola would look suspicious in the black-and-white photos and mess with her wholesome image. When that event concluded, she moved on to the banquet hall. 400 people were in attendance as a little Korean horse marched in and stole the entire show. There was, of course, cake fed to Reckless by Kay Pedersen, which she relished. She didn't stop there, though. As speeches were given and the event carried on, you won't be surprised to hear that she made her way around the room eating the flowers out of the table centerpieces. Following this event, Reckless proceeded to the elevator and rode it cheerfully up to the ballroom for the official cake-cutting ceremony. Tradition has it that the first piece of birthday cake is presented to the guest of honor, which Reckless thought was just fine. The second piece is presented to the eldest Marine present, signifying the honor and respect accorded to experience and seniority. Symbolically, the eldest Marine then passes this piece of cake to the youngest Marine present. This represents the way, for years, the experienced Marines have nurtured and led the young Marines that will fill the ranks and renew the Corps. In addition to being the guest of honor at this event, Reckless was also, conveniently, the youngest Marine present. I'm sure she was happy to have both pieces of cake. 
Again, the stories just go on and on, but in all accounts, the little red horse was on her best behavior all day. Well, if you don't count her eating the flowers, but that was hardly surprising. She stood to be admired. She handled the travel, the crowds, the photos, and the schedule of the day like it was her job. But it was a very long day for everyone, and she was glad to be delivered back to her temporary accommodations in a stall at the pier for some well-earned shut-eye. It's worth noting also that on the opposite edge of the continent that day, there was another big event. November 10, 1954, was the day that they dedicated the Iwo Jima Memorial in Washington, for which Little Reckless had raised so many ransom donations when she was kidnapped by the 4.2 mortar unit in Korea. The next day was more of the same celebrity meet-and-greet in the city before Reckless was loaded onto the trailer for the 500-mile trip south to Camp Pendleton. Their stop at the base was brief, as she was technically still under quarantine, so she stopped to have a short sign-in ceremony where she was signed into the guest book, among a cascade of popping flashbulbs. After the stop at Pendleton, Reckless moved into reserve camp for a while at the Pedersons' home. It was a very happy time for her. Reckless stayed for just over a year with the Pedersons. Eric, his wife Kay, and their two children, before her legal ownership was finally officially transferred in late November of 1955. She was sold for $1 to the 1st Marine Division Association. The 5th Marines wanted to be sure that their celebrity had the best of housing, so they set her up with her own special stable on base in the Camp Margarita section near the regimental headquarters and the residence of the base commander, General John Selden. This was a stable built especially for Reckless, and the guys say it was luxurious. A set of rules was drawn up on the recommendations of Colonel Gear, describing the limitations on her public appearances, the expectation that she was not ever to carry anything heavier than a blanket, and certain aspects of her care. The rules made mention of her preference for sympathetic care of her hooves and her extreme dislike of most dogs. They laid out that her care was to be the best available, which, as I say, meant that she had her own place to live. Reckless was not considered one of the common base horses, and so not to be kept at the base stables. She received the best of care that anyone knew how to provide, but it seems there weren't so many people in Reckless's new circle who had the knowledge and experience to keep her healthy and happy. The military routine that generally rotates responsibility from one person to another made it tough to provide consistent care for the little horse. Toward the end of 1956, PFC Art Sickler was brought into the colonel's office, and he was understandably nervous about it, assuming he was in trouble for something. It seems he had built a handsome fence around the motor pool. And when Colonel Schmuck saw it, he had an immediate suspicion that the fence had been built by a rancher. And it had indeed. When he was asked if he knew anything about horses, Sickler answered that he had been riding since before he could walk. As before, the guy who knew horses was immediately assigned to be official caretaker for Sergeant Reckless, and his orders were to do what he needed to do to bring the mare up to the picture of health. It was a very good match. 
Author Robin Hutton interviewed Art Sickler for her book Sergeant Reckless, America's War Horse. When he reported to the little stable, he found Reckless in less than ideal shape. She was somewhat underweight, her coat was rough, and her feet needed attention. Horses need some special types of care beyond just having a roomy stable and a nice pasture, and it takes some knowledge and experience to keep a horse in good health. Luckily, Colonel Schmuck had Art Sickler stationed on the base. Sickler made some changes to Reckless's diet to put some weight on and give some shine to her coat. He trimmed up her feet, and he called the local veterinarian out for a checkup. The vet did something we call floating her teeth. Because of the shape of a horse's mouth and the way they chew, domestic horses will often develop sharp edges or points on their teeth, which makes chewing difficult, and so the animal doesn't chew their food as thoroughly, or they may even eat less of it. The vet filed down these sharp points with a special tool called a float, so that chewing would be easier, and Reckless could get more nutrients from her food. The vet was also asked to deworm Reckless. In those days, internal parasites were a real management problem in domesticated horses. They were controlled by administering a powerful deworming medication. The vet would pass a tube into the horse's nostril and down their throat into their stomach and pump in the medication to kill the parasites. It was such an invasive process, and the medication was so aggressive that it was rarely done more than twice a year. In between treatments, it was very common for these parasites to invade the horse's system so that they would look unwell, especially if a treatment was missed. The animal would lose weight and muscle and develop a rough coat. In the early days of this practice, people would wait until a horse looked wormy as Reckless was starting to before treating them. But eventually, tube worming, as it became known, evolved into a standard twice-yearly routine that was just part of good horsemanship. When they live with humans, horses inhabit a very restricted environment, which fosters infection with internal parasites. Managing that will probably always be a challenge for a number of reasons, but broad-spectrum paste dewormers were probably one of the major advances in equine care of the 20th century, right up there with antibiotics and vaccines. Until these medications were packaged as a single-dose oral paste in the 1980s, Horses were considered old at the age of 20. Today, horses are often still thriving at that age and routinely live beyond 30. Reckless was probably about seven and a half years old by this time, and once she had been through a round of veterinary care and Art Sickler put some good elbow grease into her grooming routine, she began to glow with good health within a month, which pleased the base commander considerably. Art really loved that little horse and loved that it was his job to keep her looking and feeling well. He tells about making a bed of leaves for her and curling up next to her while she napped. Reckless was grateful to have the sort of friendship again that she had known in Korea. It filled in the time between her duties, and Sickler remained her handler and her friend until 1958. At the time of her sale to the Marines, there was a lot of discussion about how they would handle any appearances that the mayor might be asked to make, and Andrew Gere again provided guidance in setting the policies. Keep in mind that she was a genuine celebrity, honored among the Marines as a true heroine of the war, and everyone who loved her wanted to do anything necessary to keep her from being taken advantage of. But at the same time, they wanted her to serve as a goodwill ambassador for the Corps. 
They also knew that standing around watching things happen around her was not going to keep the feisty reckless content either. The rules were established such that any appearances requested would need to be negotiated in writing. Her speaking fees were pretty steep, but any funds she raised would be allocated to the 1st Marine Division Scholarship Fund. She would never be asked to do anything that did not befit her rank and military record and reflect positively on the Marine Corps and the division. There was some discussion of the possibility that she would play herself in a movie with John Wayne about the latter part of the war to be called The Outpost, but the movie was never made. In fact, in spite of the idea that she might be called upon to serve in a promotional role for the U.S. Marine Corps, nothing of that nature ever transpired. Instead, during the part of her military service between the move to Pendleton in 1955 and her retirement in 1960, Sergeant Reckless's duties were mostly related to appearing at ceremonial functions on base or with her regiment and participating in long training marches with the men. She was on active duty, after all, and was expected to participate in anything that involved the 5th Marines. By the end of her service, her previous experiences were starting to catch up with her physically. She had one bad hind leg that can be seen in video from this time, but while she wasn't able to stay in the ranks the whole way, she led the troops at the beginning and the end of each day's march and stayed in camp with them each night along the way. Regarding her ceremonial appearances, Reckless would appear at all important events and always was given a place of honor. Whether at promotions, change of command ceremonies, or armed forces day ceremonies, she had an important role. The younger recruits coming in would sometimes underestimate what Korea had been like and not understand why the blasted horse always had to be prepared and marched out. Every time the story of that terrific little mare was retold, though, the forgotten war was a little less forgotten. There are, of course, a number of stories told about this time period in which Reckless makes mischief on the base, just as she had done in Korea. Most of them revolve around the fact that her little custom-made private stable was evidently a little too private for her taste. She had never had to live by herself before, and in spite of the regular and devoted care she got, you can imagine that this was not the way she wanted it. I've always said that ponies see a fence not as an obstacle or an impediment to freedom, but as a puzzle to be solved. And so, reckless like nearly all the best ponies ever born, did her best to take a walkabout around the neighborhood every couple of weeks. Now, it so happened that the base commander's hacienda was surrounded by some very charming flower gardens, lovingly tended by his wife. You can see where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. Reckless liked the commander's wife's flowers just fine. It seemed it was largely her fascination with the Hacienda Gardens that motivated her eventual relocation to the base stables with the other horses. Reckless acquired a friend at one point later on, a little chestnut Shetland pony named Samson, who really enjoyed playing chase games with the war heroine. They were turned out together, and in between the running about and playing tag, they would graze side by side. It seems that Samson honored his ancestors by being a bit of a troublemaker. The children who hung around the base stables recalled him as a real stinker. Reckless's appetite for junk food apparently also caused some problems. She was pretty demanding about being fed anything that anyone had in hand at any time. 
hot dogs, sandwiches, soda, chips, anything she could smell. This got to be a little risky for her adoring public. She was never reported as being aggressively mean, as some hand-fed horses will get, but the reports are consistent that she did turn into a bit of a bully. In Korea, Reckless had eaten in the mess with the guys. Since she lacked words or thumbs, she had developed her own way to communicate that she was hungry, usually by nudging or bumping the guys with her nose. But it would progress to biting if she was ignored. Once she was on the base with visitors and children about, it would be easy for that communication to develop into some really pushy behavior. Eventually, a sign was put up in the stable that said, Don't feed Sergeant Reckless. In her later years, Reckless started to pack on the pounds. Easy weight gain is a sign that a horse might be developing insulin resistance, which is similar to type 2 diabetes in humans. Age, inactivity, and a high-carbohydrate diet will make this condition worse over time. It's a common condition in pony breeds. In 1957, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Gear passed away after a brief battle with melanoma. In the four or more years that he had known Reckless, Gear was always her biggest booster. His book, Reckless, Pride of the Marines, was published in October of 1955 by E.P. Dutton and Company, and he earned recognition as Author of the Week by the Associated Press. All proceeds from the book were donated to the First Marine Division Association's Scholarship Fund. Gear can be credited with nearly all of the notoriety that came Reckless's way after the war, including quite possibly her rotation stateside. She was loved and admired by the Marines, but he was the one who took the story to the public. He wrote the original article for the Saturday Evening Post that was published while she was still in Korea, which got her a ticket home on the SS Pacific Transport. He untangled the red tape involving the Ag Department and Customs. He also paid for the passage of her handler, PFC William Moore. Again, the story's on this ferry, but according to Robin Hutton, Andrew Gear was able to get replacements for the uniform decorations that Reckless had eaten on board the ship before she landed in San Francisco. It would have been very important for such a highly decorated Marine to have her uniform complete when she appeared as the guest of honor at the Marine birthday banquet. Hutton quotes Andrew Gear's nephew, James Taggart, and his sister, Marion Erickson. The background on Gear as an athlete, popular author, screenwriter, military officer, and, of course, his role as advocate, benefactor, and press agent to our friend Reckless, is worth reading more about. Ms. Erickson wrote a letter to the editor of the San Diego Union on July 31, 1966, stating that, all told, Gear spent $1,200 of his own money to bring Reckless home and get her settled. In today's funds, that's well over $10,000. Hutton describes the way Andrew Gear wrote about Reckless this way, quote, In his last ever article about Reckless for the Saturday Evening Post, Gear proposed a plaque for Reckless's quarters at Pendleton. Home is the warrior. Let Marines who pass this way take notice of honors won and the esteem in which she is held by those who were there with her when the battle was in doubt. Remember, Marine, here is an unusual Marine. May we have half a million as true. End quote. 
There was one other thing Reckless did that none of the men were asked to do. Reckless became a mother. Her first foal was a gray colt. It seems she had been turned out with one of the horses from the rodeo string at one point, nobody realizing the bucking horse was not a gelding. There is some disagreement because of this, because nobody wanted to lose face, but base records show his sire is a bay thoroughbred. This is the horse she had been bred to earlier, chosen by the commanding officer. In any case, the handsome colt, foaled on April 6, 1957, was given the name Fearless. There were a lot of different people who only knew part of the story, but I can tell you this about equine genetics. Fearless was a gray horse, and gray is a dominant color gene. This means that if the offspring is gray, one of the parents had to be gray. If the sire, the father, was bay, and we know the color of the dam, the mother, was chestnut, then there is 0% probability that the offspring would be gray. I'm sorry to say, there's just no way that colt could have had a bay sire. Around this time, it was determined that Sergeant Reckless was due for promotion, and a ceremony was arranged. It was on June 15, 1957, two months after his birth, that young Fearless was promoted to the rank of Private First Class. On the same day, his mother was promoted to Staff Sergeant, E5. I actually love this idea. Here's the thing. A Staff Sergeant is a non-commissioned officer, or NCO, recognized for the experience that they have gained by their time in service. This might include proven military skills or advanced leadership training. NCOs are responsible for looking after the welfare, morale, discipline, and efficiency of Marines in their charge. I have to say that during her deployment, and even after during her peacetime active duty, Staff Sergeant Reckless did every bit of that and more. The time of service to earn this rank is usually seven to ten years, and she earned it in less than five. According to Janet Barrett in her book, They Called Her Reckless, the candidate was awarded early promotion, quote, for attention to duty, devotion, and loyalty to the Marine Corps, end quote. This was more than just a publicity stunt, though. The Marines took her rank very seriously, and whenever there was a parade or other ceremonial event, she had to be led by an officer who was senior to her, because leading a horse constituted giving orders, and you couldn't do that if she outranked you. This was a legitimate thing. On the day of their promotion ceremony, Reckless and Fearless were honored by a regimental review. Imagine turning out in your best dress uniform with 1,700 Marines in combat dress parading in your honor. All the reports of people who knew her at Pendleton say that Reckless loved the ceremonies, and she absolutely knew when she was the one at center stage. Fearless would have a career as a trail horse at the base stables for a while, but he was later sold off base as a ranch horse. It seems no one knows what his life was like after that. But when he did die in 1969, cause unknown at the age of only 12, he was buried at the Camp Pendleton Rodeo Grounds. Reckless's second son was sired by a gray Arabian stallion. He was foaled two years after his brother Fearless on March 2, 1959 at the base stables, and he was also gray. 
he was given the name of Dauntless in keeping with family naming tradition. This name was chosen by the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Randolph McCall Pate, the very same man who had promoted the famous mother to the rank of sergeant in Korea. Reckless had friends in high places. Dauntless received other favorable treatment as well. The normal enlistment requirements were formally waived in writing so that he would be able to officially enlist in the Marines and begin basic training such as would be appropriate to his service. At the beginning of the year, the Corps had undergone a rank reorganization, adding two more ranks, Lance Corporal E3 and E9. The E5 pay grade of Staff Sergeant that Reckless held at the time would carry the rank of Acting Staff Sergeant until she was promoted. And so, in order to maintain her current rank, she was eligible to be promoted again to Staff Sergeant, pay grade E6. This presented an opportunity, so another promotion ceremony was organized. Once again, she was to be promoted by her old friend, General Pate. Reckless was promoted, and Dauntless was recognized at his enlistment ceremony, which was held on August 31, 1959, with a full regimental review, 19-gun salute, and the 1st Division's Drum and Bugle Corps in parade. This time, Reckless had an additional fan club in attendance. The ceremonies were open to the public, and among the crowd were 125 local Girl Scouts, who had recently given Reckless the title of Honorary Scout. The promotion warrant was read, General Pate pinned on her chevrons with rocker, and newspapers across California covered the story. Private Dauntless's enlistment oath was apparently administered in horse language. The young horse was placed in recruit training. When he came of age, he went to the rodeo grounds to be started, then to be transferred to the base stables for service in such position as suited him. It turned out that what suited him was just about anything a horse could do. In particular, in addition to being a trail guide horse, Dauntless became a real favorite of Marine Sergeant Tommy Mac Turvey Sr., After running the Camp Pendleton Rodeo for three years, Tommy Turvey Sr. went on to become an actor, stunt rider, and wrangler. He is also father to renowned equine extremist Tommy Turvey II, whose working partner Poker Joe is as much an entertainer as any human. Tommy the Son is a movie wrangler with a very long resume, but is probably better known for something else. I'm guessing you have seen the training work done by him and his wife Chantal, for the Budweiser Super Bowl commercial titled Brotherhood, where the horse escapes from a parade and runs through the city of Chicago back to its trainer, and they hug at the end. I digress. Anyway, when Tommy Turvey Sr. was in charge of the horses for the base rodeo, he got to pick any horse he wanted from the string for his work such as leading the grand entry parade, bulldogging, hazing, and picking up. Consistently, he chose Private Dauntless. In Hutton's book, she relates Turvey's commentary on what a fantastic rodeo horse he was. Quote, Turvey remembered Dauntless as an outstanding bulldogger. Once they open the chute, you have to give the steer about an eight-foot head start. Dauntless could put you on that steer from zero to 30 miles an hour in three seconds. And when he'd pass a steer and you'd get off, he wouldn't quit on you and leave you hanging in midair. Every time we'd put Dauntless in the chute, he would always score. End quote. 
The hazing horse has a different job. He starts right away with the steer, runs alongside the steer on the opposite side, and helps to place the steer where the bulldogging horse can drop the cowboy onto the steer. Dauntless was equally good at that. Turvey also used him as a pickup horse. They will ride in and pull the bronc riders off the horses if they stay on, but they also need to catch the bronc once it's loose and pull the flank strap off. It's a tricky job and takes a versatile horse. Dauntless could do it all. I guess I hear the story of Dauntless, and all I can think of is that he was his mother's own son. Smart, agile, fast, and independent enough to do a job on his own once he learned what it was. Reckless was retired, fittingly, on the Marine Corps birthday, November 10, 1960, six years to the day from when she first set foot on American soil. Once again, this was done as only the Marines can do. Staff Sergeant Reckless, PFC Fearless, and Private Dauntless were all in attendance as Reckless was relieved of marching and parade duties with full military honors. Imagine her there in her dress uniform, comprised of a red and white blanket, emblazoned with her name and division. It was a unique uniform. On her left shoulder, she wore all of her battle ribbons. Reckless wore the chevrons and rocker of a staff sergeant on her hips. She also wore a Good Conduct Medal, the Presidential Unit Citation with Star, the National Defense Service Medal, the Korean Service Medal, the United Nations Service Medal, and the Republic of Korea Presidential Unit Citation, as did all of the members of her platoon. She also wore the French Fourager on her left shoulder. During World War I, the 5th and 6th Marines fought heroically as part of the Marine Brigade of the American Expeditionary Force. Having earned three awards for valor, both the 5th and 6th Regiments were permanently awarded the French Fourager to wear and maintain on their uniform for all time after World War I. In addition, Reckless had on her blanket the two Purple Hearts she had earned for her injuries during the battle for Outpost Vegas. When a Marine is separated or retired from active duty, they're given a final paycheck for their service. Since Reckless couldn't receive her pay in the form of money, she was given quarters and messing at the Camp Pendleton stables in lieu of retired pay for the rest of her life. At the ceremony, since quarters and messing can't really be shown in pictures, she was given a bag of oats. Now, Normally, at any ceremony, Reckless was the picture of military decorum. She would stand quietly and watch the parade and so forth. On the day of her retirement, as she trooped the line at the end of the ceremony, she reached the end of the line and stopped. She turned back to the crowd and let out a big, long whinny. We can't know what she was really saying right then, but whether... As Robin Hutton reports, she didn't want to go. Or maybe, as Janet Barrett puts it, it was her way of saying, Well, thanks a lot. See you guys. It was fantastic. Either way, it was clear that she knew what the ceremony was for. At the end of the day, Reckless got a piece of birthday cake. The life that Reckless enjoyed in her retirement was definitely not without purpose. She had more than her share of visitors at Camp Pendleton. As many people know who have lived with war, 
violence, fear, and want, there is nothing like a sympathetic ear when you're feeling down. Horses in particular have an uncanny ability to share their quiet time unconditionally with a person who needs it, and Reckless provided that for many, many Marines who passed through Camp Pendleton. First, on their way back from Korea, as she had come, and later, on their way to and from Vietnam. Not only was she a sympathetic companion, but she knew firsthand what they had seen. She had done what they had done. After she retired, Staff Sergeant Reckless had a third son, who was foaled on December 6, 1964. The sire was the same bay thoroughbred as was listed in the base records as Fearless's sire, but there was no doubt about the parentage this time. This colt was what's called seal brown, or dark bay in color. He had a very dark brown or black body, with lighter brown areas around his nose and flanks, and a black mane and tail. This horse was named after the most decorated Marine in Corps history, Lieutenant General Lewis Burwell Puller, who went by the nickname Chesty Puller. This third colt was also much bigger than the other two, since he was half thoroughbred. Chesty had had his early training done by the professional rodeo cowboys on base, and they got him settled and found him to be a great working horse. He was actually so good that they sent him over to the base stables so he'd get more than a few months a year of work. He came to be an exceptional guide horse, a favorite of Tom Fant, who took out rides at the base stables. Chesty had a big straw hat that he was given by some local girls at the stables, but unlike his mother, he loved his hat and was happy to wear it around the place. But it was at the stables that they found out just how particular Chesty was about his riders. Fant got along pretty well with Chesty, and as a guide horse, he worked out for quite a while with any riders who handled him right. Anyone else got dropped in the dirt. He would pitch off anyone he didn't like though evidently he pitched Fant at least 18 times as well, and that was someone he actually liked. Here's the way Hutton quotes Sergeant Lynn Maddox, Chesty's former rodeo rider, on how Chesty came to leave the base. Quote, There was something in the ownership papers for Reckless that said that these horses could not be sold from the base. So what they did was made a deal. They didn't sell the horse to me. But because he was deemed to be unsafe for the stables, and I was deemed to be a professional cowboy horseman, the horse went to me, and I made a donation to the Navy Marine Corps Relief Society, end quote. Maddox kept Chesty for many years, well into his late teens, before passing him over to a man he had met who was in the 5th Marines in Korea and wanted desperately to give Reckless's son a good home. The timing was right for Maddox and he let him go. Reckless was to have one more foal, a chestnut filly that arrived in 1966, sired by a registered quarter horse stallion. After producing three colts, all of whom had been gelded, I am quite certain that spirits were high to know that the marine heroine's genes could finally be passed on to a third generation. Sadly, that was not to be. The unnamed filly died only a month later, and the cause is unknown. When I was reading each of the books about Staff Sergeant Reckless and I began to approach the ending of the story, each time I would read on with more and more apprehension. 
I found this to be as compelling a part of the story as anything that had come before. Her life had had such a huge effect on so many others. Honestly, if you think about it, what other single horse in human history has directly touched so many people's lives, as well as indirectly changing the lives of so many people by their immediate actions. Her combat service by itself was instrumental in the outcome of many battles. Alone, she carried many wounded soldiers to safety, well and truly saving their lives. She became a national heroine, maybe not quite the same as Seabiscuit or Secretariat, but certainly close to it, thanks to the reporting of Andrew Gear. Then, you have to consider what Reckless did at Camp Pendleton. She was without equal as an emissary for the Marine Corps, and she provided very real and very personal solace to thousands of visitors. Many of them were departing and returning troops. My apprehension as a reader had to do with the fact that I was reading this horse's life story. And there is only one way that a life story can ever end. Even telling the story, I found it hard to work my way around to losing her yet again. As Reckless got older, she suffered the usual concerns of an aging horse in the 1960s. She had been through a hard time when she was young, and that took a toll on her body. Hutton tells the story as it was reported by her veterinarian, Dr. Robert L. Miller of Fallbrook Veterinary Hospital. In her late teens, Reckless was developing signs of arthritis in her back. This is pretty common, and considering the use her back had taken when she was younger, it's hardly surprising. It's also reported that at some point while she had been in Korea, she had been injured by contact with a jeep. That story is lost to time, but if you watch any of the film footage of her from her years at Pendleton, the lameness is pretty obvious. In short, she was showing her age. Reckless was also affected by the early development of a condition known to veterinary medicine as laminitis. In its later and more severe stages, it is commonly referred to as founder. This condition refers to inflammation of the internal tissues in the hooves of certain mammals. When it's severe, laminitis is excruciatingly painful, as the internal parts of the hoof become unstable, and affected horses and ponies will often simply lie down to take the weight off their feet. We now know laminitis to be a symptom rather than a disease. It is triggered by some other condition affecting the animal, but can be caused by many things. In the horse, it can be triggered in hours. Perhaps a horse breaks into a feed room and gorges themselves on an overload of carbohydrates. But much more commonly, it comes on slowly with age, triggered by changes in the endocrine system. Even today, with our modern medicine and understanding of the condition, laminitis is still generally listed as one of the top three or four reasons for euthanasia among horses. Triple Crown Winner Secretariat and popular favorite for the Triple Crown, Barbaro, with all of the medical resources available to support them, were both humanely euthanized due to progression of laminitis. Secretariat in 1989 and Barbaro in 2007. In the 1960s, a laminitis diagnosis would have been a certain death sentence eventually. Without the understanding that we have today of causation and treatment, 
the animal would have had mild, seasonal episodes that became longer and a little more severe with each passing year. Changes to the hooves would become progressively harder for the farrier to control. Getting around would become progressively more difficult, and finding comfort would become harder and harder to do. When you combine the changes in the hooves with the shorter intervals between episodes, at some point the owner and veterinarian begin to expect and wait for the worst. Pain medication was available that would have been given regularly to minimize the discomfort, but at some point that would stop being enough and a difficult decision would have to be made. It's tough when a horse is really important to you and you cherish every day of their lives to decide that today is the day when they are in bad enough shape that it's time to call it done. What makes today worse than yesterday? That's a difficult balance to come to terms with. But often with horses, other circumstances arise that will make that decision for you. On May 13, 1968, Reckless was out on grass in the colonel's pasture. It was a lovely day in Southern California. She didn't come in for dinner, and when they went out in search, they found that she had fallen in a ravine entangled in some barbed wire. What exactly had happened? Whether she had been testing the fence and lost her balance, or whether she fell and then became entangled... Nobody really knows. In any case, Reckless's injuries were severe, and there was no decision to be made. The legendary war heroine was humanely euthanized. It was a practical matter that Reckless should be buried right away, and they chose a spot in the stable yard right near the office. She was laid to rest carefully, and a small ceremony was held with just the people who were there at the time. Over time, changes have been made to the buildings, such that this burial site is no longer at the center of things. It was a very different sort of morning three years later, when on the damp Saturday morning of November 20th, 1971, 120 people showed up at Camp Pendleton to memorialize the life of their friend and comrade. Some of her bones had been exhumed and reinterred near the gate to the stables, and a granite memorial was placed. This was the opportunity to give Reckless a proper burial, with full military honors. And they surely did. In a fitting tribute, the crowd included then-Captain Eric Pedersen, who had first recruited Reckless in 1952, the base commanding general, Dauntless, age 12, and Chesty, age 7. It was Chesty's last public appearance. Lynn Maddox said that he lived into the 1980s, which would have been a very respectable old age in those days, but base records say that it was 1976 when he died. Dauntless lived the longest. He lived past age 25 at Pendleton. All three of Reckless's sons were buried at the Camp Pendleton rodeo grounds together. Also among the large congregation was Gladys Selden, the widow of the former base commander, who Reckless had so charmed when she arrived, and whose flower beds she had so enjoyed on her escapades about the base. It was a pretty impressive crowd. 
The stone was unveiled, showing a picture of Reckless in her dress sheet that she wore when she first came to the States, and a bronze plaque. The First Division band played, and the ceremony was emceed by George Putnam, a Los Angeles newsman and former Marine. Robin Hutton's book includes Putnam's announcement from the following Monday's evening news. Here's a piece of it. Quote, Horsemen have a saying that a good horse should be deep through the heart. In addition to being a point of confirmation, it provides stamina and courage. In every sense of the word, the brave mare Reckless was deep through the heart. And so, we paid our respects to the gallant mare at the base stables, and you never saw so much brass as gathered there in tribute. And looking down upon this scene from the pastures adjoining were broodmares and young foals, keenly alert that something was in progress. I'm sure that all of us who are gathered here, members and friends of the Corps, held the same affection for her as those who were privileged to fight beside her. I am also sure that in the land of rewards that lies beyond, this chestnut mare with the handsome blazed face and three white stockings is mingling even now among the men of the Corps. And when there's a load to be carried, when there's ammo to be rushed up to the front, She'll always be there to perform her tasks beyond the call of duty. In the spirit of Semper Fidelis, always faithful. And now she is at rest. And where she is, the grass is tall and green, and the hillsides bright with flowers. Sergeant Reckless, pride of the Marines, is at rest. End quote. The 60th anniversary of the Korean armistice was on July 27, 2013, but the festivities kicked off the day prior in the Semper Fidelis Memorial Park at the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Triangle, Virginia. On that day, a bigger-than-life bronze sculpture of Reckless, entitled An Uphill Battle, was unveiled. The ceremony was attended by hundreds of Korea War veterans, as well as the Corps' top-ranking officers. The command to unveil the memorial was given by Sergeant Harold Wadley, who had served alongside Reckless during the battle for Outpost Vegas. Author Tom Clavin describes the setting of the memorial this way in his book, Reckless. Quote, the first glimpse of Staff Sergeant Reckless was through a stand of tall, slender trees. Then the path straightened and the entire clearing could be seen, surrounded by maturing trees bursting with summer foliage. The bronze monument at the center of the clearing is not a large one intending to impress with size and the implication of power. The power of Reckless was evident in the strength of her will and courage and persistence. The inscription on the monument was from Sergeant Wadley. The spirit of her loneliness and her loyalty, in spite of the danger, was something else to behold. Hurting, determined, and alone. That's the image I have imprinted on my head and heart forever. The monument gleamed bright in the midsummer sun. Reckless stands on an incline of rock that represents the sides of the hills that she climbed repeatedly to bring the next batch of recoilless rifle shells to the Marines above. The saddle on her back carries four of the 24-pound shells, two on each side. 
Her right front leg is raised as she prepares to take the next step upward. Her back hooves are planted and pushing, and her left front leg is like a piston just thrust into the barely yielding hillside. Her tail, lifted by a slight breeze, is spread to the left. The muscles in her powerful chest are taut as the horse gives every ounce of her strength to haul her burden. Her ears are up, nostrils are flaring, and there is, indeed, sheer determination in her slender face. End quote. There were 3,700 people who visited the museum that day. It's presumed that 3,000 of them were there because of Reckless alone. At the conclusion of They Called Her Reckless, Janet Barrett posed the question asked on the day of the memorial dedication in 1971. Quote, Why, someone was asked, did so many show up that many years later, some of them driving long distances to be at Reckless's memorial? The answer was simple. She was one of us. Semper Fi. End quote. For the planning, execution, and dedication of the monument, which is cast from an original sculpture by Jocelyn Russell, credit has to go to Robin Hutton, who collected an impressive team of donors, workers, contractors, and supporters, and has led the memorial project from the very beginning. A second installation of the monument, An Uphill Battle, has been placed at Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, California. Ground was broken in August of 2016, and 600 people attended the dedication ceremony on October 26th. In the final moments of the ceremony, Reckless was posthumously presented South Korea's Ambassador for Peace Medal. The medal is made of barbed wire and mortar shells from the DMZ, and is an honor bestowed by the Republic of Korea to Americans who served in the Korean War. On Wednesday, July 27, 2016, the 63rd anniversary of the Korean War ceasefire, Reckless was posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross for Animals in London. Officially, this is called the Dickin Medal, and it acknowledges outstanding acts of bravery or devotion to duty by animals serving with armed forces or civil defense units in any theater of war throughout the world. It is awarded by the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals, or the PDSA, which is the United Kingdom's leading veterinary charity. They provide free veterinary care for people who can't afford to take care of their sick animals. Reckless is the 68th recipient of this prestigious medal, and the first horse to be recognized in 70 years. So, there's a lot of stuff in the show notes for this episode. You can find links and references for the sources I've used in this story, as well as links to the social media accounts for the various authors and how to donate to one of the funds I've mentioned. The show notes are at our website. Just go to atimeforhorses.com forward slash Staff Sergeant Reckless. If you just can't get enough of this story and want to hear more, there is so much more to be told. The book's Reckless by Tom Clavin, Sergeant Reckless, America's War Horse by Robin Hutton, and They Called Her Reckless by Janet Barrett are all available in print or for Kindle, and the first two are also available in audiobook format on CD or through Audible. Andrew Gere's book, Reckless, Pride of the Marines, is available in print. I hope you've enjoyed this short series on A Time for Horses. 
I'll be back in a few weeks with our next episode, a story about a man who, because of who he was and what he did, and the very curious way that he did it, changed forever the way we see horses. If you're listening to the show on the web, you may already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com, and you'll find the notes for this show at atimeforhorses.com forward slash Staff Sergeant Reckless. In the meantime, you know what makes a good podcast great? More listeners. So please, if you haven't done so yet, do the three R's. Go to your podcatcher of choice and rate, review, and recommend the show. That's how people out there in the interwebs can find us. You can like, follow, or add us, and then share, tweet, or tell someone the old-fashioned way that you are enjoying our show. If you're new to the concept of listening to a podcast, I'm really glad to hear it. You can subscribe to the show for free and never miss an episode. Just go to atimeforhorses.com forward slash subscribe for links to the various places where you can find us. Thanks for giving me your ear space. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.